Well, good morning. morning. Everybody got their coffee, cookies and whatnot. Good. Well, um, welcome to our, um, I think this is the fourth session that we've done, a fourth meeting uh, of a journey through the Bible. Let me back up real quick. Um, Come on now. Of course, the right when I start, the slides aren't working. There we go. Um, so we're going through a journey through the Bible um, up until Easter. Correct, Roger? That's the season that we're in until Easter. We're doing a journey through the Bible, or is this the whole year? Oh, the whole year. So we're taking our time. Um, the first session that we were in um, was a promise of the kingdom. We went through uh, the book of Genesis, and now we're entering into session two, um, where we'll be in the second book of the Pentateuch, second book of the Old Testament, second book of the Bible, Exodus. Um, and in it, Exodus builds upon Genesis and also fits into the meta narrative of the Bible of showing us um, what the kingdom of God is like, not just in heaven, but on earth and um, how God will come to bring that to be. And so today, um, instead of teaching you, I wanted to teaching, I guess you could say. I wanted to tell you the story of Exodus. This will be two parts. Um, next week, I'll wrap up teaching Exodus. Um, but I'm going to try and tell you a story. We're, we're going to hone in on some of the um, finer details of the book of Exodus, but also kind of taking a 5,000 foot um, up in the air, looking down view of the book of Exodus um, and the Exodus of Israel out of Egypt. And so we'll look at um, some gifts that God gives, but also some fruits of that gift, of those gifts. And so if you didn't know, uh, the Exodus, like I said, Israel coming out of of Egypt, um, and it comes right after Genesis to where when it was written, they're tethered together in such a way um, that's as if the author didn't even pick up the pen um, at the time when he was writing it. And so they're really interconnected. And so if you could, please hold your questions off to the end. I'm going to try that. I like to conversate, but today I'm just going to try and uh, rush through it because there's a lot to cover. And so we'll begin right at uh, verse 7 of chapter 1 because it tethers together, like I said, the two books. It says, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And we see, like I said, Um, the language that's used here is just like the language that is used in Genesis, how connected they are. As we just read in Exodus 1-7, we can see that it's a mirror of what God said to Adam in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1-28, where he said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then we see later on God say to Abram, Abraham, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And so we see already um, God's promise to his people um, is slowly becoming fulfilled. Um, We see from God to Adam to Exodus, fruitfulness, they're multiplying, they're filling, but they don't have dominion. Currently, they're under bondage in Egypt. Um, And so God is slowly working in his people to bring forth that promise. And so there's four gifts that we'll see um, in Exodus. The gift of freedom, the gift of the law, the gift of a land, and the gift of a future king um, that are spoken of 
or foreshadowed. And so with that, um, where we find ourselves right now, as I said, Israel is currently in bondage in Egypt um, by Pharaoh. And in Exodus 1, 8 through 10, we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. And so, and I want to give you an image just to kind of help illuminate this more. Um, the first gift that, as I said, we'll go over is freedom, because the Exodus was God's gift of freedom to Israel from that bondage. And so, remember how I said, uh, God said to Abram, how he'll make him a great nation. Well, right now, they're currently not, just because of um, their current situation in Egypt and the way they're being treated. And this is actually a, a painting in an Egyptian tomb showing, um, they're, they're unsure if it was actually um, of the nation of Israel, but just this is the kind of work that Israel was doing at the time of Exodus. When we read these, these verses, keep this in mind. And so where we find ourselves right now is in the lower, uh, excuse me, uh, in the land of Goshen up here in Egypt. And so keep that in mind. And then also in Mount Sinai, where we'll come. Um, also another illustration. I love to use illustrations to help the text come alive of just um, of how Israel is currently being treated um, in Egypt. And so what does God do in all of this? Well, he chooses a man named Moses to lead his people out of bondage and into freedom in the land that he has promised to them. We see that in Exodus 3.10. God says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And so from that, we see Moses being the agent of God to, um, to bring forth the promises of God. And he told Moses, or to tell to Pharaoh, in Exodus 4, to 23, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. Now, of course, Pharaoh's not going to accept that um, in a pleasant tone or in a pleasant manner. And so in Exodus 5, 2, we see Pharaoh say to Moses, well, who is this Lord that I shall obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so before um, God's promise of freedom in this land and this new king and before he gives him the law, we see that there's tension, tension between God, the God of Israel, but also of the Egyptian God, the sun God um, named Pharaoh. And so through that, God is going to, to bring to fruition his promise, as I said, through Moses, but also by um, 10 acts. And as we know, they're called the 10 plagues of Egypt. And so for each one um, that God uh, reigns upon Egypt, and specifically Pharaoh, um, there are opportunities for him to surrender, but also um, for him to show to Egypt his sovereignty. And so in all of these, though, as I said, there were an opportunity for Pharaoh to repent or um, to bring about the freedom of Israel. God has hardened his heart so that his plan can come to be, so that his promises are fulfilled. And so 
The tenth and final plague, um, as we meant, as I just said, is one where the firstborn of all of Egypt will die, except for those of Israel. And in the Bible, we refer to this as the Passover. In this plague, God spares the firstborns of every obedient family who marks their door with the blood of a lamb. And he takes the life of every firstborn male, human and beast, of those who refuse to do this. So by this, God is showing his sovereignty to not only um, Israel through his works in Egypt, but to all the nations of the earth. And in Exodus 9, 16, we read, but for this person's purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may may be proclaimed in all the earth. And so he's showing his sovereignty to the whole world. Well, Pharaoh finally does surrender and he releases the Israelites um, after 400 years of bondage um, in Egypt. And they begin the exodus out of the land and into the one that God has promised for them. But Pharaoh changes his mind and he chases after them. He pursues them. Yet God in his sovereignty uh, miraculously uh, rescues his people by allowing them to pass through the Red Sea, um, using Moses as his agent to open up the waters. Um, They come onto dry land. The Egyptians are still, and Pharaoh are following them. But then when they reach the dry land, Moses then closes the seas and consumes all of the Egyptians. And so from this, um, we see this beautiful imagery. I mean, you can't just read this text and not see in your mind. I, I try using, I don't even think this graphic can be a tenth of how awesome and amazing that this, this uh, miraculous act of God truly, truly was. And so in it, we see how Israel is led by God to where he wants his people to be, to this land that he has for them. We see this, this, the next gift out of the four gifts in, of, um, of Exodus of what God wants for his people. And so this gift of freedom um, Oh, excuse me, that was the wrong slide. They're all not working correctly. Come on. Don't you just love slow Wi-Fi? <laughs> there we go. So, uh, excuse me, Israel's making their way out of Egypt to the place that God has for them. There's a few past uh, routes that they believe they might have taken. But they're coming out of Egypt and into Mount Sinai, which is uh, today referred to as Jebel Musa. Kind of a, a long journey but they're being led by God. They're not just aimlessly wandering yet. Um, They're truly being led by God. And so from this gift of freedom, any day, there we go. Israel is going to have freedom from slavery. They're going to have freedom to have a relationship with God, but also the freedom to know him and know him personally. Uh, This grand act from God shows the heart and the compassion that God has for his people, um, which is even greater than the, the act that he has committed. We get to see more of God. He's revealing himself to his people. And so with this gift of freedom, um, we see from God uh, him showing the goal of the Exodus. And we see, um, kind of referred to earlier, what that promise was going to be in Exodus 6-7, where he said, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. So from this, I wanted to highlight real quick the, the word Lord that is used there. And if in your Bibles, it's typically capitalized, um, meaning Yahweh, um, the divine name of the Lord. 
Um, instead of using that divine name and, and putting that there, um, English translators have put in um, Lord or, or Adonai, uh, meaning my Lord, or Hashem, meaning the name. The reason being is that the divine name of the Lord was so um, reverenced that they didn't even want to say it aloud. And so they would use um, this, uh, this title right here. And even to this day, um, Jews won't say this word. Um, so this is why in your Bible, if you're ever curious, why is the, the name Lord fully capitalized and the other words aren't? This is the reason. This is to show reverence to the divine name of the Lord, which should also help us in our treatment um, or how we view God and how we come to God and the reverence that we should have. Even if his name is held in this regard, shouldn't we hold him into a higher or to a higher regard? Um, and so I think that's kind of a, a helpful tool for you to not only um, help read um, these verses where you see this word, but also in your relationship with the Lord. And so this gift of freedom that Israel has just been given. Um, we see in Exodus 15, this beautiful poem known as the Song of Moses and Miriam. And from it, the people of God are worshiping God. But we can see in Exodus two, uh, 15, two things. One, that God is incomparable, but also how God is sovereign. And this is the whole chapter, um, almost all of it. And I'll read a few, bit, uh, a few bits of it. In Exodus 15, 11, we see who is like you, O Lord, among the gods, who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders. Exodus 15, 18, the Lord will reign forever and ever. So not only do we see that God is incomparable and sovereign, but we also see this massive double claim that God owns the universe, but he also rules the universe. He's the owner. He's the creator, the owner and the ruler of the universe, not the gods of Egypt, the sun god Pharaoh, it is God and God alone. One second. And so here's the chart that we've been using through this series um, and we'll continue to for the whole year. We're in the first session, we were seeing uh, the promise of a kingdom through creation and the fall and then the promise to Abraham. And now we see this kingdom taking shape through Moses for Israel, through the Exodus. And we see the first gift of freedom. Um, they've been given it. They're out of bondage. And we see the second gift um, of the law get, uh, being given to Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Um, and it's a true gift. Some people can view it. They think it might be rigorous or burdensome or bureaucratic in nature. And in no way is that. It's, a truly, uh, it's truly a gift from God. And so the law, the Hebrew word for law is Torah, which means instruction. And so now that God's people have been given freedom, uh, God's given them an instruction on how to live. Beforehand, their instruction on how to live was given to them by Egypt. Um, they had to obey their laws. So now God's people have God's law given to them. And it's supposed to be an architecture of blessing, a channel through which they have a life of worship and also a relationship with God. So this law is also revealing more of who God is and how his people are supposed to be in relationship with him. But as I said, there's a, uh, some people view the law as burdensome. Um, even in today's day and age, Americans view the, the law, or maybe any nation, the people of it view the law as it's overpowering, overwhelming, authoritative, um, in, a, in a wrong nature. But in no way is this the law of God. It's a gift, as I said. And all gifts from God are good, so we can view the law as good. 
And two of the most frequent misconceptions of the law, and I've heard these, and I've believed this when I was a young boy before I was taught more on it, is that uh, isn't the law just about the Ten Commandments? Or don't you get saved by obeying the law? And this is far from the truth. The gift of the law is about how to live well and wisely under God's rule. Through it, we see how to love God, how to also love our neighbors, how to live justly and righteously in our community, but also the people that are outside of our community, but also how to foster a blessing of community wherever we are at through loving God and through loving one another. The other misconception about the law is that don't you get saved by obeying the law, and that's not true because the law is not the means of salvation for Israel then or for people now. That's not the case because that wasn't a part of the Exodus story. That wasn't how they were saved. If you remember, remember, rescue comes first in the story of Exodus, and it comes before the law. So why did God give his rescued people the gift of the law? The reason for that is that so that he can teach them how to live and the newfound freedom that he has just given them. So as I said, this gift of the law is a true gift. It's true in nature. It's truly good. Um, And from it are four fruits. um, Identity of who Israel is, their identity in God, but also a way to live, an instruction on how to do that, a way to worship, but also a purpose, a purpose um, for God and a purpose of life. And so today, though, I just want to highlight in one of the fruits of the law, and that's uh, a way to worship. I'll go over the next three um, next Sunday. But with the gift of law, it shows Israel how to worship God. The law gives Israel a way and how to worship God, but also how God can be with his people. They don't get to choose, like with the pagan gods we see with the sun god of Pharaoh or even in mythology with those gods. People were choosing how to worship their god but not, not the one true sovereign God. Sinful people do not get to decide how they will worship God. God decides how sinful people will worship him. And that we see that through the law and how they can have a relationship with him, but also worship him. And so when Moses was on Mount Sinai, he said to Mo, uh, God said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments So before Moses could even come up onto the mountain of Mount Sinai, where God was waiting for him to give him the Ten Commandments, he had to consecrate himself and the whole nation of Israel by washing their garments. Consecrating meaning to be made holy, to be set apart as holy. And so the problem is that the penalty for sin has always been death. We know this. We see this in Genesis. So God put in a system um, called the sacrificial system. And through it, excuse me, we see substitutionary atonement. We see this in the Old Testament, uh, starting with here, but also in the New Testament. And we've mentioned it before in services um, on Sunday or, or Wednesday. But substitutionary atonement is essentially the idea that the guilt or sins of the nation might be put onto another, namely a sacrificed animal. So salvation by substitution, just like the Passover lamb, in Exodus 12. And we see more of that explained in, um, in Leviticus. Um, and so we'll get to that in two weeks. But we see um, the foundation for it being laid in Exodus. And in Exodus 20, 24, we read, God's saying, and all to the earth you shall make for me 
and sacrifice on your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. And so from this, we see, like I just said, the Passover lamb in Exodus 12, this substitutionary atonement. But we see more of this, um, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And in some of the letters um, in the New Testament, we see more of an explanation, more of uh, an understanding of it from a different angle. And so in it, come on now, of course, it's not wanting to work. Here we go. Uh, the sacrificial system. I want to give you guys a better understanding of substitutionary atonement. It's a big word, a theological term. Um, I wanted to show you how in the New Testament we can understand not only how Jesus is our substitutionary atonement, but the substitutionary atonement that was in the Old Testament. And so with it, um, we can see uh, in the book of John, uh, uh, the Gospel of John, the Gospel of Matthew, and the book of Hebrews, um, a better understanding of it. And in Hebrews, we read, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, just like in the Old Testament. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John 1, 2, 9, and 29, just like the Passover lamb. And then in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And finally, in Hebrews 10, 10, and by that we will have, and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. And so this atonement we'll see more of in Leviticus, but I really wanted you to understand substitutionary atonement because it, it plays into the gift of worship that God has just given Israel, but also how that gift, um, we still have it today, is through Jesus, through his death on the cross for our sins so that we may be, uh, or they may be atoned for. And so how Jesus is our substitutionary atonement for our sins. And so we, we see already how Israel has been given the gift of freedom. Um, they're soon to be given the gift of land. Um, they've been given the gift of the law on how to have a relationship with God, how to live with God, how to worship with God and be his people. Um, and lastly, the, the gift of a king, which will come, the fourth gift, not just in the Exodus, but we'll see throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament, this king um, who we're waiting for, Israel is waiting for um, in Jesus. And so that is the Exodus. I wanted to give you guys enough time to ask questions because last time I did not. So I apologize if I talked fast. Uh, I wanted to get through because last time I did not give you guys any, any time for questions. Yes, Roy. If the Jews still follow the Old Testament, why do they not do blood offerings anymore? Why? I'm sorry. There's no more sacrifices in the temple. How do they get past that? It's a good question. You guys mind helping me with that one? I don't want to. In simple terms, please. No, I don't. That's why I'm asking. No, that's a great question because of, if you don't know, if you would like to share. Jewish heritage. heritage. Thank you. That's a a good question. Uh, Okay, a couple things to say there. For the sacrificial system to work, you have to have a temple. Okay. There's no temple. It really can't be done. But this is why, by the way, even right now in the modern day state of Israel, there is a third temple movement right. afoot. And there are even red heifers that are being bred by a guy in Texas. I read about this two weeks ago. <laughs> Perfect red heifers, which would be used on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. They kind of have that breed there and maintaining it in the hopes of one day having the temple rebuilt. 
But the temple was destroyed a long, long time ago. You know, 78 years by the Romans. So that doesn't mean they haven't sort of had sin insurance for the last, uh, you know, 1900 years or something. The answer is that within rabbinic Judaism, which was which kind of emerged after the temple, the Jews had to sort of rethink whether it meant to be Jewish without having a holy city and having a holy temple instead of that city. Rabbinic Judaism kind of developed and it, it kind of came up with alternatives to use in the meantime. You know, how do we deal with sin and things? And there are other traditions that developed, seen by a lot of people as kind of a stopgap until a third temple might one day be built. So that's sort of a Jewish, very brief Jewish perspective on these issues. Great question. Great question. I did hear about that, how they're, they're forming together just bits of the, the third temple um, yeah. in Israel right now, which is pretty crazy. The third temple might lead to the third world war. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Any question? Not, not a question, but a video I watched a couple weeks ago, it shows where so, it, it kind of fraught when they went through the Red Sea, mm-hmm. and there was evidence of chariots and all sorts of influence underwater mm-hmm. the divers have come up and show pictures of mm-hmm. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, there's yeah, artifacts that you can look up. Um and I was talking to with Roy about this before the class. If you um if you look up there's books uh, called Biblical Archaeology. There's tons of them. I have a few in my office. Um where there there's pictures of these artifacts. Um that not just Christian archaeologists, but even secular archaeologists or even Jewish uh, um archaeologists um just finding these and you know from the christian point of view like we're i mean we're overjoyed and um it's really funny when i took a class on biblical archaeology if you looked at the history of that study of that of that discipline of that science um you know they, the scientists would say like well there's no proof of that if there's proof of that then then i'll believe well then they find some artifacts and then they just raise the bar a little higher and then they find some more and they just keep raising it but there's never going to be enough evidence because it, we're not saved by works. We're not saved by the evidence. We're saved by faith. And there's no amount of artifacts um, that can really lead to faith. I mean, maybe the Holy Spirit can work through in that, in that moment. But I mean, think about it. People saw Jesus but didn't believe. They saw the miraculous works. They saw um, him teach um, the way he lived his life. And they just like, you know, nope, don't believe it. Not for me. Still going to wait for the Messiah or... I'm going to go worship this pagan god instead. So um, it's sad to see, but for us, it just enriches our faith. Um, strengthen us in the faith, and it's beautiful to see. But at the end of the day, if we didn't have it, God is still God, and he's still my savior. Um, and to his glory, may I live. So it's Holly. I have a question. Yes. Uh, and uh, over and over and over again, God hardens heart. Yes. Mm-hmm. Why? Um, What's the purpose of that over and over and over again? And that, and that specifically to harden his heart. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think we can look at it through in the beginning of Exodus, um, just seeing, I mean, we all have opportunities in our life or before we give our life to Christ of, of following him, of, of having him as our God. And so, I mean, I don't know exactly how old Pharaoh was, but I mean, he had the nation of Israel in bondage. And so um, I don't want to say opportunities, but he had the, 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 the gift was there for him. He didn't accept it. And so God's going to go through with his plan. And so God hardened his heart so that God could bring forth 
the fruits of that promise to the nation of Israel. And so God is sovereign. Not only did he move in what he wanted to do, but he's going to use people to accomplish it, whether the hardening of heart or not. Does he do that today? I know we're kind of getting into uh, free will and predestination. Uh, Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Um, I mean, God is already victorious. I think in the way you can look at it now is um, I think in terms of for the Holy Spirit to move, um, he can still harden people's hearts. Um, but they can still repent of that. Um, can't let see your eyebrow raise. I was just seeing how glad I was not to be asked that question. Yeah. Oh, man. It's sort of an intimidating question, but when I have two brilliant theological minds, I'm more intimidated by these guys in the back. Just give me a thumbs up or just a down if I'm going off course. I would say, like, in the text, um, the word for heart in this heart, there's, there's three different words used in the text. And a couple of them, he hardens his own heart. Yeah. So Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. There are a couple passages where um, the word strengthen his heart is used in his resolve, you know. Um, but this, the Exodus, is um, the paradigm, the shape of God's salvation in the Bible. Even Jesus' salvific work is Exodus-shaped, as I'm sure you guys will talk about later on, probably especially during Lent, you know. But um, I would say it's, it's, a, it's a paramount moment in the story of Scripture. It's a, it's, this moment is the moment that Yahweh connects to who he is all through the rest of the Old Testament. I'm the God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the bondage of slavery. He, he says that to four or five, six generations down the line. He's still saying that to those people. So I would, it's a tough question. And, and I think there's mystery. I'm, I'm happy with mystery because God's ways are not my ways. And sometimes what he does is above what I can understand. But I also want to recognize that the text does say that something like this is happening. But I also want to recognize the profundity of the moment. Yahweh is doing something to show his glory. And to, so that the nations will know that he is Yahweh. So, Question to answer. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Can I just say something directly to it? I don't mean to give God an escape valve or something, but a little bit you almost alluded to it, kind of where uh, my understanding is all through the Old Testament and Hebrew writings, you can see the phrase similar to God did this, God hardened his heart, or often saying something like that. And and like Kenneth was pointing out, it's not, it's it, the Hebrew isn't as exact as the English sounds. And I don't mean to say, oh, you know, God had nothing to do with it, but I think you can see what God says, I am the God who delivered you. He doesn't identify himself and say, I am the God who hardened Pharaoh's heart. You know, he, he seems to claim clearly when he was acting. And then we have things like, for instance, I'm trying to think of an English phrase, but I can't, but in Spanish, because the Moors had taken over Spain for a while, they have a saying that, oh, I wish, I hope. And when you say, I hope, you say, ojalá. 
and Allah. You can hear it. It's inshallah, you know, in Arabic. So people say, if God wills, but they don't really mean that. They just mean, I hope. Mm. And so Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Might be the more accurate understanding of it. And that God wasn't playing puppet master so much as um, it's a phrasing that you, if you want to be really, uh, I feel like the Hebrew scholars over here, I, you, I've spent some time kind of going, I wonder, and looking through all of the times that a phrase like that is in there, and, and uh, I think it might be a colloquialism. Hmm. And Paul's happened to live in the mystery in Romans, you know, chapter 9 through 11. He gets into this, he, he mentions it. And that, I'd like to be where Paul is, just kind of happy to live in the mystery, take the next to There you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I think too often we can get um, not that it's wrong, caught in those rabbit holes where you miss the big picture. And so, um, while I'm not saying don't focus in on that, you know, study that and research it, but like, let's not miss the big picture of God's working um, towards the fulfillment of his promises for Israel. So, Rick. Well, I just was going to comment about, thank you for listening to y'all, from a present day perspective and a secular perspective, human nature, which is, of course God created, uh, makes us not appreciate um, accomplishment without disappointment. Truly appreciate. And not appreciate the good unless you experience the evil or see the evil. So the contrast helps mm-hmm. us truly understand and acknowledge um, the gifts that God gives us. And again, we're taught to take even the, the bad part of it and treat it as a gift. But I mean, I'm you know trying to think that um, Maybe the uh, hardening of the heart is just is another version. I mean, obviously, the true version of that, but that today, just looking at how we're made up, I mean, you know, we really, without having a contrast, it's hard for us to really um, appreciate the gifts we get. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can we toss into the pot stubbornness and pride and, yeah. and ego, egoism? Can, can we toss into that? that uh, if, if, if you're stubborn, you're going to hang on to yeah. that. Mm-hmm. You're prideful, you're going to hang on to that. that uh, yeah, I think we can say that, and I think yeah. also we can harden our own hearts at times um, from yeah. our, our pride and our ego. You know, you read the Word of God and it says something, um, and it convicts you by the power of the Holy Spirit, um, and you choose not to follow it. When you're hardening your heart from the Holy Spirit and the work that He wants to do through you or in you, whatever it may be. Yeah, so with no firstborn son, if you, if you look at it contextually speaking, no firstborn son um, for a family would mean no future, no legacy to pass on to. And so with the, the death of a firstborn son, 
um, to Pharaoh uh, when Moses spoke that to him, that's a real, um, I mean, those are fighting words. That's the best way to put it. Like, like you can't say, like, that, that's my legacy. That, that is what is to come next. And so by the death of the firstborn, um, and when God instructed the nation of Israel to, on their doorposts, um, put the blood of a lamb, uh, that they would be passed over, where we get the Passover, um, the feast of the Passover, the Passover lamb. And so with it, um, God is showing in his sovereignty how he's going to wipe out the nation of Israel by wiping out all of their firstborn sons, their legacy, their future, what is to come, but he's going to pass over the firstborn of Israel. And so by saying that, he's saying that I will be victorious and I will have a future, I will have a legacy you will not, because you are man, and I am God. Is that... Yeah, that's great. Let me add one thing to that, too, just in terms of the, the sort of theological significance. Um, there is a certain symmetry that you see in that last play, where you take into account the status of the Hebrew slaves before God. So um, they were... Israel is God's first one. Pharaoh had taken and was brutally oppressing God's firstborn son, Israel, the nation collectively. Mm-hmm. Of course, there would be one true firstborn son that would come out of that nation eventually, known as Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so there's a symmetry here. God says to Pharaoh, you take in, you're killing my firstborn, unless you let them go, the same thing's going to happen to your firstborn. Mm-hmm. So it's not random. You know, actually, there's a symmetry there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. Since we're on the plates, um, in Genesis 1, God says ten times, Creation is God speaking ten times. Here, He is un, He is decreating Egypt. He is pulling Egypt apart. He's taking away the light. He's He's the, the waters are chaotic. The creeping things, the birds of the air, the the, the lands of the animals, climaxing with the death of humans. You know, He's there, there's ten words. In creation, there's ten plagues in Egypt. It's a decreation story. And he's going to give ten more words in a, in a few chapters after this where he constitutes and recreates a nation out of these people. So there's also, this, it's not random that it's ten. And, you know, when you think about six in, Pharaoh's like, all right. God's like, no, I'm doing something. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm doing something. Right? So there's deep, just, I mean, you could go down this it's a long way. But mm-hmm. It's awesome to see that sort of the symmetry, the intentionality, the theology of all that is embedded in these texts, you know, that God has for us. You know? So, and just by the way, that when he said God's going to do ten more words just there, yeah. the ten words of creation, ten plagues, the ten more words, those are the ten commandments. Yes. And the word that uh, if you use in scholarly discourse for the ten commandments is the, the word is decalogue, decalogue, which means ten words. Mm-hmm. That's actually what that word means. That's a great observation. <coughs> Yeah. It's great to have people who are smarter than me in the room. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. He took and he was going to kill the firstborn. Yes, ma'am. Even before that, 
the firstborn were always usurped by second child. Is that it? You know, by um, Esau mm -hmm. and, you know, giving his blessing, taking it from yeah. the older one to the second one. He'd done that before um, Cain and Abel. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, what's the question? Um, yeah, I think more so rather than looking at it as, a, as an equation like that, I think more so um, God will use imperfect people um, to accomplish his plan. Um, I mean, look at Moses and Aaron. Um, it's believed that Moses had a, a speech impediment of some sort or that he was shy, and so God used Aaron. Yeah, and so, um, yeah, I don't want to say, don't highlight too into that, but more so the imperfectness of them. Um, I mean, if you look at, like, with uh, Jacob and Esau, as you just mentioned, um, they weren't these holy, holy men, priests who, I mean, they were gatherers, hunters. I mean, if you look at all the people that God uses, the imperfected, uh, their imperfections are used to show the glory of God and how perfect he is, um, which is just a beautiful image of, of how God sees us, but also our relationship with him and how we can be used by him. So. Amen. I would also add that the second son motif in Genesis is subverting expectations. The expectation, the cultural norm, is the firstborn son. Mm -hmm. um, so there's this subversion of expectations, of this pattern of the second being coming and being the one that God is working through. This generation that comes out of Egypt, um, they're going to die in the wilderness. God is going to take their children mm -hmm. into the promised land. God has got this interesting thing happening that you've picked up on. Mm -hmm. But I would say that the death of the firstborn um, in the final plague is A, a response to the, the death of the sons in um, in the beginning of that Exodus, right? And what, what Patrick was saying about um, a lineage, a future, carrying this forward. Um, but I don't think he's, I don't think they connect, the, the, the subversions mm -hmm. there. Um, the Egyptian firstborn that we talked about, mm -hmm. that Patrick mentioned, they're the ones that are going to, to die. Um, but you're talking about no teachers playing out in God's own people, mm -hmm. the second born. <laughs> Anybody else? All right, let me close this in prayer. Uh, thank you for coming. Uh, sorry I talked real fast. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for this day, Lord, this gift that you've given us. Um, may we use it to draw near to you. Uh, may we use it to worship you. Um, to love you deeper and also to love our neighbor deeper um, because by doing those, uh, we fulfill the law and the words of the prophets, Lord. And so as we leave this schoolhouse, Lord, um, may we see this world in a lens that you see it, um, the brokenness in it, um, the hurt and the darkness that is in it, but also um, the light that you are, the healer that you are, the rescuer that you are, Lord, um, just how sovereign you are, and Lord, I just praise you for that, um, for all that you've done for us, bless us, what you've promised, the fulfillment of those promises, but also what is to come, Lord. 
So we thank you and we praise and we love you. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.